This morning's reading is from the book of 2 Chronicles, chapter 7, verses 1 through 22, the entire chapter. It's found on page 363 of your Pew Bible. Again, 2 Chronicles 7, verses 1 through 22. For those who are able, if you please stand for the reading of God's word. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifice before the Lord. King Solomon offered as a sacrifice 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. The priests stood at their posts, the Levites also, with the instruments for music to the Lord, that King David had made for giving thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever, whenever David offered praises by their ministry. Opposite them, the priests sounded trumpets, and all Israel stood. And Solomon consecrated the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord, for there he offered the burnt offering and the fat of the peace offering, because the bronze altar Solomon had made could not hold the burnt offering and the grain offering and the fat. At that time, Solomon held the feast for seven days and all Israel with him, a very great assembly, from Libahamoth to the brook of Egypt. And on the eighth day, they held a solemn assembly, for they had kept the dedication of the altar seven days and the feast seven days. On the 23rd day of the seventh month, he sent the people away to their homes joyful and glad of heart for the prosperity that the Lord had granted to David and to Solomon and to Israel, his people. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man to rule Israel. But if you turn aside, 
and forsake my statutes and my commandments that I have set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them. Then I will pluck you up from my land that I have given you, and this house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight, and I will make it a proverb and a byword among the peoples. And at this house, which was exalted, everyone passing by will be astonished and say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to their house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt and laid hold of other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this disaster to them. Amen. Let's pray. God, there is none like you in heaven or upon earth. God, you are the one that keeps your covenant and is full of steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all of their heart. God, you have spoken with your mouth and you have kept your promises. So this morning I ask as we open your word, would you come and magnify yourself in our midst? Would you come and make yourself known to us? Would you fill us with the knowledge of the Holy One that we might see you and know you and love you and live according to your ways? God, this morning I ask that you would compel our hearts to see in your word your desire for your people. God, that we would order our lives accordingly. God, would you fill us with your presence. Take this house that is called by your name and fill it with your glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So as we come to this passage this morning, uh, I'm gonna fly through chapter six just as a, by way of overview, but want to spend our time in what we heard read. And as we come to 2 Chronicles 7, this serves in a lot of ways like an inflection point in the text. Uh, so much of what has come before in Chronicles is leading up to this moment and culminates in both Solomon's prayer and the Lord's response to Solomon that's going to shape the rest of our time in Chronicles. So this, this in some ways serves as this turning point and God is going to give Solomon in the, his visitation of him this, this night as we heard read, uh, a rubric for how we're going to see the remainder of Second Chronicles unfold. But as we get into that, I just wanna spend a few moments getting us on the same page. Look with me at your notes. As the Lord is working in our church in this past season, we've highlighted a lot the reality that he is calling us to build his house, build the house of the Lord. We're seeking to return in many ways to uh, the patterns that God has given for his people, um, particularly as it refers to orienting our lives around rightly ordered worship at the center of our lives, both individually and corporately. 
This is not just because of the particular place that we find ourselves as a spiritual family, though there is some reality to that where we've walked over the last several years where the Lord's brought us the seasons of testing and discipline and um, shaking that have come to us particularly as a spiritual family. We're experiencing this desire to set out to rebuild the house of God in a particular way. But also what's happening around us in our broader cultural and spiritual moment in the world. One of the specific ways we are seeking to uh, understand and strengthen and give language to and establish what God is doing is preaching through the books of Chronicles. And every time I say that sentence, I chuckle to myself because Ricky's made fun of me for several months about when, we're, when, when, when you're trying to rebuild or replant or renew or anything like that, he's like, who in the world preaches Chronicles? Uh, no one in the history of the world has preached chronicles to accomplish this. Um, and I, I go, well, there you have it. But I think they're important, right? We've, we've talked a lot about that. The books are written to exiles that are coming home from a, a period of captivity with the task of repairing the house of the Lord that had been destroyed. So these books have a, a unique design, they're uniquely crafted, they're uniquely structured to inspire a people looking at the ruins around them to take up their place in God's work, to partner with him in his purposes and the work of his kingdom. And we've talked about this, but we find ourselves in a similar moment. I think in our cultural moment, our societal moment, where we're looking at the ruins that are around us Right, I, I, I just, even, even this morning, I'm struck again with the realities of the disparities that we see in our world around us, right? We're wealthier and more comfortable than we've ever been in the history of humanity. And behind the facade, we all know that the emperor doesn't have any clothes on, right? We're all aware that things are crumbling and breaking and the very fabric of the world seems to be tearing apart. And we're all aware of this and looking at it and going, what do we do? How do we live? What do we step toward? What, do we, what, what does God desire in this season? So in these two chapters, we're given two powerful realities that will serve and orient our labors as we desire to respond to the Lord's calling for our church. In 2 Chronicles 6, what we see is God's purpose for his house, namely that it would be a house where he would meet with his people, where his people could call upon his name and lift him up in the place of prayer and his ear would be attentive to us, his eye would be upon us, that his dwelling place exists for a reason so that he can commune with his people and that we can have a place to draw near to him. And then we see in 2 Chronicles 7, God's pattern for renewal. So what I wanna do is this. I'm not gonna look much at uh, chapter six. Go with me to page three. I'm just gonna summarize a couple points there. I really encourage you to go read chapter six, even this afternoon. Again, this is one of those things, I don't think you have anything going on today. Um, hey, but if you can make some time today or tomorrow, go read Solomon's prayer in First Chronicles or Second Chronicles chapter six. 
It's majestic. It's beautiful. It's faith-inspiring. Essentially, what Solomon does is he says, God, would you take your house, this place where you've set your name, this place where you've said you're going to dwell in and among your people, and would you have a particular disposition toward us if we come to you here? And he says, will your eyes be upon this place? Will your ears be attentive towards this place? If we find ourselves in these dire positions, in these difficult straits, these places of testing or um, obstacles or hardship, and we humble ourselves and call upon you, will you be pleased to be who you are and act, to forgive, to come close, Will you, the God who the highest heavens cannot contain, will you come and dwell and inhabit in this place? And like we saw last week, we, we know that in the person and work of Jesus, the house of God is now his covenant family, the church, the people who have been sealed with his spirit and born again by his life, who have put faith in Christ Jesus, washed of our sins because of his blood, were welcomed into his family and being built up as, as his house. And so we have these principles from this prayer of, God, if we find ourselves in troubled times, I love the, the part in verse 36 in Second Chronicles 6 where he says, if they sin against you, and then he summarizes it and he goes, and nobody doesn't sin against you. If we realize and we call upon you, Will you be this kind of person to us? Will you be this kind of God to us? So Solomon prays this majestic prayer. He asks God to be these things. And we see in chapter seven, essentially, the Lord says yes. He says, yes, this is how I am disposed towards my people. Both in how he responds with filling the house and as he comes to Solomon and specifically instructs Solomon in how his people are to relate to him. So we're gonna look at that this morning in God's pattern of renewal. Look at Roman numeral three on page three. So after finishing the house and offering the prayer to the Lord, the Lord responds to Solomon and the people. First, he does this by sending fire from heaven to consume the offerings and the sacrifice filling the house with such glory that the priests can't even enter in, eliciting a reverent, awe-filled response of worship from the people. I love, if you read this as a whole, from First Chronicles, I keep saying First Chronicles. If I say First Chronicles, I mean Second Chronicles right now. I got in such a, I mean, we preached First Chronicles for so long, it's just like second nature to me. In Second Chronicles 5, if you start there and you work your way through this, you see this wonderful arc of the people of God worship, God responds, they can't stand up, and they worship again. It's unreal. It's like, this is who you are, God. God shows up, and then they can't even bear up under the weight of it except for to worship him yet again. We see it here in verses one to three. As Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the house because the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. 
When all the people saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. So we talked about this a little bit last week, but what we see is in the new covenant, the Lord fills his house with the fire of his presence at Pentecost. So Jesus offers his life as a sacrifice. He dies. He's raised again on the third day. He ascends to heaven to be with the Father. And on the day of Pentecost, when all the work is finished, he sends the glory of the Lord to fill his house. This is what's happening at Pentecost. And I want you to see this because you might be tempted to go, well, that happened one time. That's what the church lives in. But I, I, I think we can see that there are moments in which God continues to fill his house with his presence. So we see Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all gathered in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues of fire appeared upon them and rested to them. Then we see in Acts 4, the early church, right? They, they're filled with the spirit on the day of Pentecost. They go out, they start witnessing, they start ministering, they start seeing God's power in his life at work in and among the church and through the church. And then they get to Acts chapter four. They gather again together in the place of prayer. They ask God to do it again and he does. Look at Acts chapter four. They pray, they call upon the Lord, and then 31, when they prayed, the place where they were gathered was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, continuing to speak the word of God with boldness. So we see that this is now the place where God's people are to live and pursue, right? We long to experience the filling of God's presence as the people of God. Okay, so look at letter C. Back to Solomon's story. So after a week of sacrifices and feasting, talk about that. You're going to a few hour Super Bowl party. This was worth way more. A week of sacrifices and feasting, the Lord comes to Solomon and confirms to him that he's heard his prayer and that he will set his eyes and his heart upon the house in order that his people might meet with him there. In this passage, the Lord sets out a pattern for renewal that will be seen throughout the rest of Chronicles. So I just want to read this again. Second Chronicles 7. I've heard your prayer, and I've chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land, send pestilence among my people. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. So what I want to do is walk through the pattern of renewal that God lays out here. As we are the people of God, the place where he has purposed to set his name. I want us to look at in the moment where we are, I want to think biblically about where we find ourselves 
and what God invites his people to do in light of that. So look at letter D. The first thing we see here is what you might call a crisis of decline, right? The Lord tells Solomon that the situation or the need for renewal will be experienced when there's a season of crisis, right? That we, we walk into, right? When I shut up the heavens so there's no rain, or I command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, right? So God says there's going to be moments of crisis and uh, hardship that pressure, uh, create these pressure points where renewal is needed, right? Where, where there's something that is going to need to shift in those moments. You're going to experience the hardship and the difficulty of these realities. It's clear from the covenant blessings and curses of the Old Testament that these actions from the hand of the Lord, right? No rain, locust, pestilence, they're chastisements for disobedience. I want you to look at this in the New Testament. Take your Bible and open to Romans chapter one. We're gonna, we're gonna walk through this for a minute. In Romans one, Paul outlines the reality of God's wrath being expressed upon a society as being handed over to greater embracing of sin. As a culture exchanges its worship, the expression of sin becomes more disordered and ultimately more tolerated and more embraced. Okay, I just wanna read this. Verse 18, Romans chapter one. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So right here we're getting, this section is about how we see and understand and give are aware that God's wrath is being revealed. How is God's wrath revealed? It's revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what is known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Okay, so if you lost it, here's what's happening. Paul's saying, from the fact that the sun comes up in the morning, from the fact that it runs its course through the day, from the fact that there's rain that falls on the just and the unjust, from the fact that there's orderliness to creation, seasons and times and manners of how the world works itself out. All people have a witness that God exists and that he's in charge. That's what that means. That's essentially what that means. That's what he's getting at. His invisible attributes and his divine nature. It's not enough to save someone. It's not enough so that they can come to know him in a saving way, but it's enough that they know he exists and he's in charge. And what I'm not gonna get to here, but later in Romans two, Paul says that in the conscience of every person, there is enough understanding that we know some sense of what God thinks is right and what he thinks is wrong. 
Okay, so all people everywhere at all times have a witness that there is a God and that he's in charge. I don't care what they give lip service to about how atheistic they are or there's no logical way that God could exist or anything like that. If you got them quiet and dark in a deep spot and they actually gave vent to what they knew that they knew that they knew that they knew down deep, they would know he was there. They would know. That's what the Bible says, okay? So Paul puts it very clearly. People know there's a God. And what do they do with that knowledge? So they are without excuse. Verse 21. Although they knew God, now again, not in a covenant relationship, saving way, but they know there's a being who's in charge. He's the judge. He's the king. He's there. They know that. Although they knew him, what did they not do? They did not honor him, meaning you're in charge. You're in charge. They don't honor him and they don't give thanks to him, right? Every, every person, every unbeliever, believer, everybody should give thanks to the fact that rain falls on the ground, right? The fact that food comes up from the earth and we have dinner means there is a God who does not give us what we deserve. Everyone, they did not honor and they did not give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So what Paul's doing here is he is saying, everybody knew that God is real. Everybody knows. And what people do with that knowledge is they don't like it, so they suppress it. Paul will say this elsewhere in the New Testament. It's like they take a branding iron to their internal world, to their conscience. They try to cauterize the thing that causes them the pain of knowing that God is there and that he's in charge. They take it and they don't want anything to do with it, so they suppress it and they try to brand it. They try to keep it from feeling. So what happens here, right? So we have this statement. So verse 24, therefore, because of this, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And he talks about the exchange of relationships between men and women and exchanging them for disordered relationships. Then in verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge him, God gave them over to a debased mind to do what, not, what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and he walks through this. And then I want you to see verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Okay, so I want us to think biblically about where we're at right now. 
Just take a minute with me. I wanna actually tease some things out. I wanna work this out before we move on to the next thing. All right, stay with me for a second. So the moment we find ourselves in, we see in our world increasing expressions of sin, right? There's an assault on God's created order in gender and sexuality that is pervasive in our world. There is an increasing um, proliferation of sexual immorality and darkness in those, related, those areas related to that. Hey, this is hitting in kind of like, I don't, I don't wanna say bizarre, bizarre might be a, I read a Wall Street Journal article this week on the rise of moms that are microdosing mushrooms so that they can have spiritual experiences and make it through their day. I mean, this is like, and it's becoming open, right? Okay, so things that we all know should happen in the dark are being put out in the front, championed, put on a stage, and they are what? Verse 32, not only do they do them, but given approval to them. Okay, so what does Paul say? If we're thinking in accordance with what Paul says, what does Paul say about our moment? Do we deserve the wrath of God or are we already under it? We are already under it. Okay, the wrath of God is revealed these ways. And then he walks you through how to see, are we under it? Okay, a culture that has been given over to disordered desires. And not only is that done, but it's put on a stage and approved. And there's, there's this momentum of acceptance and, and tolerance around it. Paul says that is the revelation of the wrath of God. Okay, so now we, we're tempted in this moment to, as, as Christians a lot of times, I think we're tempted to go, okay, how do, we, how do we get about doing something about this, right? All this stuff's going on in the world, how do we do something about it, right? We, we jump into the culture, right? How do we understand the culture and use the culture and help people see that they really just want God? What does Paul say about do people really want God? No. Although they knew the truth, what did they do with the truth? Suppressed it in unrighteousness, right? So is the answer, let's jump into the culture and show them how their deepest desires are actually right and good and they just are dis disordered a little bit. No, that's not what the scripture tells us. The other thing we might try to do is like jump into the political fray, right? Like if we just change enough laws, if we can just get the right laws, right? All that kind of stuff. We, we run at it these ways. We want to jump in and like affect the culture or we want to affect laws. I want us to look at reality. I want us to look at reality. We don't have 
a culture problem. We don't have a politics problem. We have a worship problem. A worship problem. If it is a worship problem, the only solution is a worship solution. Okay? Okay? This is where we got to find ourselves, right here. And God gives us this. Now we can go to page four. So what does he say? When I do these things, when I act in the way that I said I would, when I release my judgments and my chastening in in hopes that people might see and understand and be awakened to the reality of of the severity of their condition. If you find yourself in this situation, what are the words? If my people, if my people, I want you to catch this. The Lord lays out a conditional statement for his people in times of crisis. So here's a question. How does God renew the world? How does God bring renewal in the world? It's by his city, his people, his kingdom, his church, growing in purity, growing in maturity, growing in power, growing in his life, right? God is about a wildly, wildly subversive takeover strategy. I want you to catch this. The kingdom of heaven isn't like any other kingdom. How does God renew? He does it like a seed planted in the heart. He does it with renewing worship and affections and values and how we see the world, how we order our lives up under him, not by running out and doing all these things right off the jump. The kingdom of God is going to overtake the kingdoms of this world. On this rock, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Okay, so he says, if my people do something, there's a condition here. So God gave us a way forward. If we're at this place where we're going, we're looking at a bunch of ruins, everything's been decimated, we wanna see rebuilding, renewing, restructuring. We want to see the life of God. He gave us a way forward. It's clear, it's concise, it's costly, and it's not cool. I had to throw that in there, right? We needed a bunch of C's. It's not cool. It's not going to make us famous. It's not going to make us liked. It's not going to make us really accepted. It's not going to make us like the coolest thing in Kansas City that, uh, that everybody wants to be a part of, right? If we have a vision that outlasts us, right? The stuff we've been talking about with oak trees. If we have a vision of something that God might do in this place in 100 years and 200 years, if we gather that kind of vision, this is how we move forward to see renewal, right? How did a group of 120 people in the upper room literally turn the world upside down? Can you name any of their names outside of Peter? 
it came like a seed planted in the ground with people who ordered the whole of their life up under the lordship of King Jesus. And he brought majestic, powerful renewal. Okay, so he gives four ways, four things that are the pattern. These are the four things that have to orient us. We find ourselves in a moment of ruins. We want to rebuild. It's a good desire. We want to see God's life permeate our labors and our families and our neighborhoods and our schools and all that kind of stuff. We want to see it in the city. How does God do it? Here we go. Number one, humble yourself. God's people are to take up a posture of debasing our own pride and submitting to the Lord and his ways in self-denying loyal trust. So we humble ourselves by renouncing our own ways of seeing, our own ways of evaluating, pursuing our own gains and setting our hearts to fully submit to Christ's sovereign lordship over us. We renounce our own ways of trying to save ourselves and prop ourselves up and comfort ourselves and secure our own position in the world. Hey, I, I don't know how you're gonna take this. If as I talked through Romans 1, you're going, oh, I don't know about that. That sounds a little judgy for me. I would invite you to humble yourself under the truth of God's word. Humble yourself under the truth of God's word. His way of seeing is not your way of seeing. It is not my way of seeing. He has given us his way of seeing. And our job is not to debate his way of seeing. It is to submit ourselves to it, to pour ourselves out, to say, I can't see it all because I am finite. I am only dust. I can only see this much in a huge scale of reality. I've only got a pinprick size. So I put myself on the ground. I go low before the God of heaven and earth. And I receive your ways of seeing and understanding and evaluating. And I turn to pursue what you say is good, not what I want in my own strength. Look at James 4 here. James says it this way. To us, adulterous people, he's writing to Christians. Adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? What is... What is friendship with the world? John says it this way. Lust of the eyes, lusts of the flesh, pride of life. And if you don't know what those are, start to ask the Lord. Where are those at work in my life? Where are the lusts of my flesh dire uh, directing my energies? Where is the pride of life directing my energies? Where are the lusts of my eyes directing my energies? Show those things to me. Because friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says that he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. This is the grace that God will dump out upon us. 
Therefore, because he will give grace to us as we humble ourselves and receive his ways, we respond by going, God, gives, uh, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. What, what do we do then? Submit yourselves, therefore, to the Lord. So this is what that, that sounds like. God, in this area of my life, in my job, in my family, in my marriage, in my ways of seeing the world, when I come up to things in the scripture that tell me to believe something that rub against the grain of how I want to see things, I submit myself to you. I submit myself to your way. I come up under your authority and I say yes to it. So we humble ourselves. That's step number one. Number two, we pray. Prayer essentially is faith-filled agreement with God's character and with God's promises. So in this context, it includes emptying ourselves of every pursuit to establish or save ourselves and calling upon God alone to deliver us. So we empty ourselves of every strategy that we might come up to to save ourselves, to see uh, 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 his life and salvation break in, and we empty ourselves before him and say, this is who you are, and this is what you've promised, and we are going to petition you to be who you said you are, to do what you said you would do. We do this in faith, knowing that God desires to answer the prayers of his people. This is what I love in the Second Chronicles passage where God says, my eyes and my heart will be in this place. He's going, do you believe this? Do you believe that I am who I say I am and I hear you and I will move? Look at these two passages, Isaiah 30. Isaiah says, the Lord waits to be gracious he will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. Will not God give justice to his elect, Jesus says, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give them justice speedily. Hey, do we believe this? Do we believe this? Here's a better way of asking that. Does this shape what you do with your time and energy and resources? Does this shape what you run toward? When you experience the hardship of the world and you're trying to figure out your way in it, do we believe that God wants to answer his people and give us what we need? Then let's ask him. Let's ask him. Let's fall on our faces and go give us what we need. God, move in the way that you desire. Show us your purposes. Show us your plans. So we humble ourselves, we pray, then it says, seek my face. So throughout Chronicles, the concept of seeking the Lord is tied to understanding his ways and commandments and seeking to orient our lives toward him in obedience. Here's another thing I wanna say. If this feels ethereal to you, let me just say it this way. Seeking is time. Seeking is time. You cannot seek something if you never do it, right? I mean, it's like, that sounds really baseline, obvious, but I think a lot of Christians are like, oh, this is like a heart reality, right? Like I'm supposed to just honor God in, in, in everything that I do. And there's truth to that. But seeking requires time. 
right? To seek to know God's ways and his will requires that we spend time in his word, time before his face, time in his presence, time to seek to understand what he thinks about things and how he feels about things and what he longs for in this world, right? Like to seek his face actually means something. It's not just a heart disposition. There's actual time involved, right? If you were seeking to have a killer Super Bowl party, how many hours did y'all put in to what you're planning on doing tonight? How much time is gonna go into all of the inconveniences and hardships of the parade this Wednesday? No if. <laughs> How much energy is going to be? We're going to seek to have a good time. I'm not. I, I won't. But just. <laughs> right? Seeking is what you think about, what you orient your life towards, what you let consume your attention and energy and imagination, what you say yes to when you don't want to do it, what you show up for when it's hard and difficult what you give your life to when, when obstacles come up, right? This, we all know this intrinsically. This is what God asks from us. And lastly, he says, turn, right? So we humble ourselves, we pray, we seek, we turn. God calls his people to turn from their wicked ways. To turn away from what is wicked is the essence of repentance, it's a posture of forsaking what God calls evil or not good and running to him, right? This is what Jesus says. This is the essence of his message. Repent. Why? Because my kingdom is crashing into this world. My renewing agent in the world is coming. And if you want to be a part of it, turn. Turn from the things that are evil. Turn from what is not good and join, be joined by Jesus to God's ways. What does God promise then? Look at letter G. I will hear them and I will heal them. God promises that if his people turn to him in this way, he will hear from heaven and act on their behalf. He will pour out his gracious power and heal them and heal their land. We desire to see God's purposes permeate our lives, our families, our church, our workplaces, our neighborhoods, our cities. If you don't, ask God to make you want that, okay? This is what we want. We want more of God's kingdom alive in our lives, in our families, in our marriages, in our neighborhoods, in our city, in our workplaces. We want to see the life and the reign of Christ manifested in those places. That's what we want. That is what we want, right? And we, we're not seeing it en masse right now. And that's okay. The church of Jesus isn't dead. The flame hasn't been snuffed out. He will not lose. He's sitting on his throne. He is in control. He's in charge. And he's given us a blueprint to call upon him in the seasons when it seems hardest and darkest and like there's no hope. Humble yourselves. Pray. Seek. Come, heal, I, I will heal you. Turn from your wicked ways and I will hear and heal, right? We have to acknowledge that in these times, the answer is not first to work to renew everything out there. 
God has given a pattern for his people to repent, return, and call on his name. Who knows what he will do? Who knows if he'll turn and leave a blessing behind? All right, let me give you a couple ways to do this. Just as we leave. Number one, we're entering Lent, which is a tailor-made season for this. Literally a tailor-made season for this. This season is a time of reflection and repentance, remembering our need for a savior. That's what this whole time is structured around. Here's what I wanna maybe ask you to consider. We have a prayer meeting every single week. Come to our prayer meetings during Lent. Maybe reorient your life just a little bit around showing up on Wednesday nights, calling upon the name of the Lord, turning from things that you're pursuing and come and pursue God's face as a spiritual family together. That's one way. The second way is I'd invite you to consider fasting once a week. Now, oftentimes during Lent, people will give something up for the whole season, and I think there's beauty to that. Sometimes it gets a little like big, and you lose heart, and you misunderstand, or you forget why, and it's like it's hard to keep the, the, the car going the whole time, and that's okay. But what if you just ask the Lord for the grace to fast once a week, one meal a week even, like to add that into you? Je uh, Joel chapter two puts turning to the Lord and fasting hand in hand, right? There's this beautiful like chemistry that happens in a season of turning to the Lord and a season of fasting that kind of heightens them together. They're like a, a, a chemical reaction, like a combustible engine, right? It's like, it, it just adds fuel to the fire. Consider fasting in this next season, maybe one time a week, one day a week, one meal a, a week, to lay yourself before the Lord in this place. The second thing I wanna encourage you to do, as that was about entering Lent, just number two is ask a series of intentional questions of the Lord. Maybe begin to ask the Lord, where am I loving the world? Would we have courage as a spiritual family to ask that question? Could we have the courage to ask the Lord to show us, where am I loving the world? Where, where is friendship with the world coming into my life? And asking him for the grace to walk away from that. Second is walk through these four conditions and ask the Lord to show you where to step toward those, right? God will speak to you. He will speak to you. Ask the Lord, what, where do I need to humble myself? Where, where do I need to grow in the place of prayer in this season? What does seeking look like in this season? What do I need to turn from and come to you in? Begin to ask the Lord those questions as we seek him in this season. Amen.